0: Hello, welcome back to Scripture Central. I'm Lynn Hilton Wilson, part of the Scripture Central team on Come Follow Me. And I love the book of Ephesians. Today, we're in the New Testament and the epistles. This is one of the epistles attributed to Paul, although that's debatable. We'll talk a little bit about that. And it appears that it is a general circulatory letter that went to many different churches. It's filled with hymns and praise, but the whole theme is to come unto Christ. It's just beautifully written and executed. Paul says he's in bonds during this letter. So we have put it with the letters of the time period when Paul's in prison. Do you remember from the book of Acts, after his third apostolic mission, he is taken prisoner in Caesarea for two years and then to Rome. We assume this is consistent with the Roman letters because of the way that he shares similar information to the other letters that were written at this time. But if you want to read more about it, go to Acts, Chapters 21 to 27 or 28, and you can see some of those things there. I want to talk next about the title and the audience. We refer to it as Ephesians, so that's how I'm going to refer to it. But it probably wasn't written only to the Ephesians, because remember, Paul served in Ephesus for three years. He was there the longest of any other place that he had ever been, and all of the time that he served as an apostle. And yet, in this letter, he gives no personal greetings. The audience does not know him and he doesn't know them. We have lots of examples in the scriptures. I hope you can see them as you're reading through. And I hope the spirit can guide you too. I don't wanna dissuade you away, but I think that it's helpful to say, um, we've done the best we can to keep accurate um, records. And we've got thousands of copies of these Greek manuscripts and biblical scholars are trying hard, but it doesn't appear that this was written to the church in Ephesus probably a circular letter, just like 1 Peter was, and Galatians was, that goes to several different churches. And so he's not going to point out, oh, hello, Jacob, I hope you're doing well. Uh, Philo, you know, he he doesn't have that kind of relationship when he's writing a a general circulatory letter. The other thing that's interesting about this one is if he's in his Roman imprisonment, which it says he's in bonds, it probably fits in very nicely with Philemon, Colossians, and Philippians as well. And we see the same kind of vocabulary. Now, he had served in this area on his third mission. He wanted to go there on his second. Remember, in the book of Acts, the Spirit told him, don't go there. But the majority of his third mission was there in Ephesus. And so he probably had a broader area. Ephesus is also where the apostle John came and served, according to the history books. We have four letters that claim to be written during Paul's um, first Roman imprisonment. We have one Roman imprisonment where he's on house arrest, people can come visit him, he can preach the gospel, he can write letters, and then he has a different imprisonment where he's cold and hungry and no one's with him, and it's a very different feeling. One is more torturous, one is more freedom. So we assume that these four letters all came out of this freedom time. They're Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Now, Ephesians, we're told who the carrier is, and I mentioned he gives no greetings, but the others, we see similar carriers and similar people that he greets in each letter. I'd like to go through the outline of the book before we jump in. There's only six chapters, and as usual, he starts out with a beautiful greeting, and then he turns into chapter one, talking about Christ's spiritual blessings. He gives them a prayer to have revelation, to know Christ. And he then, in chapter two, talks about becoming alive in Christ. He wants the Gentiles to become one in Christ. He talks about being a citizen. And this is very important in that Roman world. And he talks about if we become citizens of God's house, it's like entering into a holy temple. Chapter three talks about some mysteries of God. And he refers to the plan of salvation with other titles. Chapter three also gives another prayer where Paul asks for them to know of Christ's love. Then in chapter four, he uses again the theme of unity becoming one in the body of Christ. And the second half of chapter four gives instructions on how to live as children of Christ. Those instructions continue on in this household code where we get instructions for marriage, children, parents, servants, and masters. And then chapter six turns to the armor of God. And he concludes in the end of chapter six with his personal news and final greetings. With that as our outline, let's dive into the text. Interestingly, people wonder if Paul wrote it. It starts out in Ephesians chapter 1-1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the saints. So this is his section on the greetings. But we have a problem. Not only does he not know them and they don't know him, we also have different vocabulary. There are 80 words in this epistle that are not used in the other Pauline epistles. Now, he has a huge vocabulary and we have different words in Hebrews as well as in 1 Corinthians and in Romans. So maybe that vocabulary shouldn't be such an issue. It is interesting, though, that when we do the computer studies with a textual analysis of how different authors use different words, and it's very complicated studies on where words fall in stylometry, Paul does not appear to be the sole author of Ephesians. So he's writing, he's in prison. It says it's written from Paul. Could he have asked one of his companions, take that last sermon and write it into a letter? Or could you please write to the churches in, around Ephesus and organize these thoughts? Here's my outline. Can you flesh it out? You know, there's many ways that it could still have been Pauline, um, even without having it fit perfectly into the same pattern that we saw in Galatians and Corinthians, and we will see soon in, in the Thessalonians. He also continues on in this greeting in chapter one, verse one, that he's writing to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, remember the word Christ is the word Messiah in Hebrew, but it's also the anointed. And he uses this word in Christ many, many times in his letters. We've already used it in letters previous, and we're going to continue to use it. But I just wanted to emphasize, what does that mean to you? If it's in Christ, it can mean on Christ or among Christ. But the word is anointed in the anointing among the anointing. I'm writing to those of you who are among the anointed, or you have received my anointing. You know, just beautiful. I think it's temple imagery. I I think it's just gorgeous. So just look out for that phrase, in Christ. You'll see it almost 99 times in these Pauline epistles, and in fact, 22 times just in the book of Ephesians. Verse 2 says, Grace be to you and peace from our God. And remember, peace is shalom. It's this beautiful blessing. Verse 3 to 14 talks about spiritual blessings, and all the way from verse 3 to verse 14 in chapter 1 is one sentence. It's the longest sentence in any of the Pauline corpus, another reason why people doubt it was pauls he didn't write like this, but this one long sentence, these first nine verses become an abstract of the rest of the letter. Verse 3 begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now in English, we use the word blessed in the Beatitudes. Do you remember in Christ's Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are they that come unto me. That blessed is fortunate are you or happy are you. This is a different word. This means let us praise our God. He is worthy of being blessed. So it's it's a different word, even though in English, they're using it the same. Let's move on to verse four and five. And there's a a word here that I want to make sure that we understand clearly in the Greek because it has different meanings in English. The BLB reads, which is very good literal translation, as he, meaning Christ, chose us in him before the foundation of the world for us to be holy and blameless before him in love, having predestined us for divine adoption. Now, because of different um, theologies, the word predestined has often been um, tied with the reformed traditions that believe in the tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. But the word predestined itself, if we go back to the Greek, it's divided into two words, pro meaning before, and then zorio meaning foreordained. And that's how it's translated in the ERV, the ASV, the LSV, the YLT. But it also means in Greek to mark off or predetermined. And I really appreciate every time you see the word predestined, if you could just fill in your mind foreordained or pre planned. Paul is so clear. It's saying we lived before. And yet other faith traditions don't have that in their theology. They say God lived before. Man was created out of nothing, you know, the creation ex nihilo. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 is very similar to what we read in Romans 8 or in Galatians 4. He talks about Christ as our Father. How does Christ become our Father? It is through adoption. We read the same thing in Jacob chapter 5 with this allegory of the olive tree. You know, you take a branch and you put it in, and he calls us the children of Christ if we come unto him. We are children of him if we covenant to live with him. If we take upon ourselves his name, we become his children. When we are living worthy of his Spirit, we are his children. Verse nine also says in the ESV, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purposes, which were set forth in Christ. Now they use this word mystery six times in this letter. And it's interesting. It means a secret or an initiation is necessary, or mystery can also mean a revelation or a counsel of God once hidden, but now revealed in the gospel. So the mystery can be Jesus is actually not the son of Joseph. He is the son of God. So now in verse 10, we're going to learn what this mystery is. In the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together one in all things in Christ. Now the word dispensation we use it one way in our faith tradition, but other Christians have it in their scriptures as well. And they use it as a management of household affairs. It's a stewardship in Greek. It's an administration or a plan. Now in the ESV, they don't say dispensation. They say a plan for the fullness of time. But we find this word dispensation nine times in the King James translation. And it refers to this whole idea of God's stewardship, that whenever there's a dispensation, there are those who are given a stewardship to act accountable to God. And I believe that as baptized members of the Church of Jesus Christ, we have a stewardship to do his will and to work for him as his servants. The word dispensation also saturates restored scripture. In the Doctrine and Covenants, we have at least nine different places where it's referenced, and nine different sections, and even more if you count each time it's referenced. I'm just going to read two of those. Section 27, verse 13, I have committed the keys of my kingdom and a dispensation of the gospel for the last times and for the fullness of times in the which I will gather together in one. And then in section 128, verse 18, it is necessary in the ushering in of the dispensation of the fullness of times, which dispensation is now beginning to usher in that a whole and complete and perfect union, the welding together of dispensations and keys and powers and glory should take place and be revealed from the days of Adam, even into the present time. Now this is very important that he says it is beginning now because most Christianity refers to the dispensation of the fullness of times from Christ's resurrection until now, ever since the Lord came and gave Peter and the apostles charge of his church, they have referred to that as the dispensation of the fullness of times. So section 128 is very helpful to say, no, that is not my definition. I think that there was a falling away, and there needed to be some corrections. There's much good in Christianity. It has done a wonderful amount of good in the world, but it's not exactly what needed to be, and that's why the Lord needed a restoration. In chapter 1, verse 11, he continues on, we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his will. Now, our prophet Joseph Smith was referring to this and he says, the unconditional election of individuals to eternal life was not taught by the apostles. God passes over no man's sins. You can't be saved just because you were predestined if you're a sinner. You have got to be a repentant person in order to be saved by Jesus Christ. You've got to come unto him. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So Joseph, not only in his scripture, but also in his sermons, was able to correct that misunderstanding of that word predestined as it was interpreted in the 19th and 20th centuries for us. But remember, in Greek, it means just planned ahead, a stewardship, foreordained. I love this next section, chapter 1, verse 12 to 15 after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. This is the only place in the New Testament that refers to the Holy Spirit of promise. I've read many, many, many other Christian ideas on what this word means, and they interpret it starting from the time of the 19th century all the way through now as the promise that the Spirit was going to be given to those who believe. But in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, there's a different definition, and there's also a different definition in our modern scripture. I'll read first from the Encyclopedia. The Holy Spirit of Promise is one of many descriptive names or titles of the Holy Ghost and refers to a specific function of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit of Promise is the power by which ordinances and other righteous acts performed on this earth, such as baptism and eternal marriage, are ratified, validated, and sealed in heaven as well as on earth. He goes on to explain there and quotes Joseph, that the Holy Spirit of promise is also another name for the other Comforter, which is, of course, the manifestation of our Savior that we talked about in the Last Supper. The Doctrine and Covenants has seven different references to the Holy Spirit of promise. It's interesting that Joseph Smith often takes phrases from the King James Version, but then the Lord builds on them and gives them their own definition, their own meaning. They are still consistent with where they came in the Scripture. In Ephesians, it says you're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. We know those two are going together. They also later in the next verse refer to the earnest of the spirit, which is another phrase that is used by Joseph. But the Lord taught Joseph more about this in the Doctrine and Covenants. Section 76, 88, 124, but most of all in section 132, we have it referenced four times there. And in six of those seven references, it's not talking about just the conditional Um, ratification that the Spirit has to make sure it's an ordinance was done with proper authority at the proper time by a purified, repentant, humble saint, but a permanent sealing that one will then be enabled to receive their permanent calling and election or the gift that is usually given in heaven. Joseph also spoke a lot on this in his sermons. And if you're interested, I've got all the references in our handouts. When we read the restored scripture and Joseph's sermons, we see a spectrum of the Holy Spirit of promise that at first the spirit will ratify our ordinances, but we have to prove, we have to be willing to take upon ourselves the name of Christ. We have to prove that we will obey all that he asks us to do and sacrifice and and honor his stewardship. And then the Holy Spirit of promise refers to a permanent sealing that is done according to section 132 by the prophet. Joseph was giving a sermon on this verse, Ephesians 1.13, and he elaborated on what does it mean to be an heir of salvation. He says, God set the ordinances to be the same forever and ever, and set Adam to watch over them, to reveal them from heaven to man, and to send angels to reveal them. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister from them who shall be heirs of salvation? That's when he quotes Paul. And he's saying, no, the the Holy Spirit of promise is given to those who will become heirs of salvation. Next, in verses 15 to 23 of chapter 1, Paul gives a beautiful prayer for the saints. And he's praying that they will know who Christ is. And I'm just going to allow you to read this beautiful prayer with the Spirit of the Lord. I won't go into any details. The verses that seem to be pretty self explanatory and filled with the Spirit, I hope you can have a prayer in your heart as you study them and get a, a great message out of them. But moving on to chapter two, we learn that from verses one to 10, all saints can become alive in Christ, not only in eternally alive, but alive now. That if we have the Spirit with us, we are more effective. Verse 4 and 5 read in the NIV, God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive. Now, in the King James, it says quickened. Remember, quickened means alive. We are made alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. We have to repent of our sins. We have to have those mortal naggings and self-centered behaviors Proudful thoughts removed. We cannot desire things of the world. We have to desire things of God in order to receive these blessings. In fact, he uses the fun idea of of a joint venture in verse 10. This is chapter 2 in the BLB. Having been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, he's not saying that we're pre programmed. We're saying that Christ and humanity can work together, and that he's got a plan made. And I told you he didn't use the phrase plan of salvation, but I think that's the joint venture. I think that's what he's talking about. The second half of chapter 11, this now refers to the Gentiles becoming one with Christ. I'd like to read from chapter 2, verse 14 in the NIV. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, I just assumed that that was a barrier between us and God, that we've we've created sin is is a problem for us, and it, it removes us from God. But many biblical scholars say Paul is talking about the Gentiles and the Israelites, and that barrier is symbolically the separation between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women on the Temple Mount, and that we need to remove that wall and allow all to come unto Christ, all to enter into his presence all to go into the sacred holy spaces. Verse 15 talks about Jesus as the new man. And I love this in light of what we learn in the Doctrine and Covenants, that our father's name is man of holiness. And so Christ is the son of man of holiness. And here he is a new man, and we can become new men if we will follow him and become heirs with him. But it says in the New King James version of chapter two, verse 16, He might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. He's saying he's already done the work. Just repent and change and come unto him. It's there. It's finished. The atonement is in place for us to receive not only his grace, but his help. Verse 19 to 22 then talks about this idea of citizenship, but citizenships in God's house is a temple. And Christ makes that clear in his ministry as well. Verse 19 reads, Ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. Remember what it meant to be a citizen in that day and age. Paul was a citizen. It was very expensive for some people. Other people were born with it. But there were very few in the diaspora. You know, outside of Rome, there's only about 1% that were Roman citizens. And if you were a Roman citizen, you received these three new names. You got to wear the new toga, you know, 35 pounds of white wool. You had a voice in the government. You had a legal appeal. You received rule by law. You were exempt from taxes. But when we go into the kingdom of heaven, our citizen is based on repentance and obedience to Christ's teachings. And that way, we are absolved from paying from our sins. We repent and are forgiven and Christ takes care of it. Verse 20 in chapter 2 says, Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. This idea of building a foundation was very important. Remember the gorgeous buildings that Herod, the great builder, started and his posterity afterward continued? The Roman Empire with its marble roads and miles and miles of cobblestone paved roads and courtyards, you know, they really understood building technique. Paul uses these analogies and says, let's build on Christ. As he's talking about prophets, though, remember that in the New Testament, a prophet is one who has the gift of prophecy. He's not talking about the head of the church. Prophets are those with pro- who can prophesy or those who have a testimony of Jesus Christ, we learn in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 10. Ephesians two twenty one has another beautiful tie to Christ and the building. In the NIV, it reads, "...in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple." In the Lord. Chapter three now goes to that topic of the mysteries that I had mentioned before. And he talks about the mystery of God's plan, which we refer to as the plan of salvation, but he talks about it for all humans. I'm going to read from the ISV of Ephesians 3:3. 3, 3. This secret or this mystery was made known to me through a revelation. Just like the book of Galatians, Paul's trying is saying, I learn through revelation. Everything I'm teaching you, I have from the Spirit. And then in verse five and six from the BSB, it reads, it has now been received by the spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are fellow heirs. This beautiful idea of the mystery is that it's not just the chosen blood that came through the tribes of Jacob. Anyone who comes under Christ can receive the blessing of God. The second half of chapter three, now turns to another prayer, and the text is just beautiful as they pray for all to know of Christ's love. I'll just read a few of the verses. Chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. I believe there is extra power in my prayers when I am on my knees. There's something about a dependent position that when my physical body is in a position to face God, I feel like it helps my spirit to go further. And then in verse 16 to 18, it reads in the NIV I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, May have power together with the Lord's holy temple to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. See, these same themes are all over Paul's letter, so I still think he had a hand in this, even if it doesn't quite fit. But the idea that the Spirit is power is linked so many times in Scripture and dozens of more times in modern Revelation than he did even in the New Testament. But this is a beautiful connection that when we receive the Spirit, we have God's power. The second half of the epistle now, starting in chapter four, is action-packed. There are 36 verbs that are all used in the imperative, and he's talking about how to become one in Christ in the first 16 verses of chapter four. And He gives a whole bunch of things to not do and a whole bunch of things to do. Chapter four, verse one through three, reads in the NIV, I urge you, to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. And skipping down a little ways, keep the unity of the Spirit through peace. I think this is wonderful because sometimes we offend the Spirit and we don't even know it. It's through being a peacemaker that we can maintain the Spirit, having our thoughts and prayers, always ascending to God, repenting, apologizing, and, and being a peacemaker. Continuing on in that beautiful section, chapter four, verses four to six, He calls on the saints to become one. He says, have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. This idea of becoming one is also the idea of becoming the heir that he mentioned earlier. We're becoming one with God. This was the whole intercessory prayer, Christ's last supper, that beautiful message of becoming one with him is when we take upon ourselves his name, when we put on his robes of righteousness. And I hope that every day in and out, as you step into your robes of righteousness, that you can take upon yourself the name of Christ. Verse 11 is one of these verses that talks about the organization of the church, and it's repeated so many different times. And we have a few of the things that are mentioned in the sixth article of faith here. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. So Jesus gave the organization to the apostles and to the saints as a gift, but Christ gave himself to the apostles. I also forgot the word evangelist is in Greek, someone who's a missionary, someone who's sharing the message. But Joseph Smith, again, uses a King James vocabulary and gives it a different definition. And he refers to an evangelist also as a patriarch. He goes back to the father Jacob, um, who became Israel in the Old Testament and said, he gave blessings, we will need a patriarch to give blessings in our church as well. And he says, all of this is for the perfecting of the saints, in verse 12, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of faith. Now in KJV, the perfecting is also translated in other translations as equipped or in training. The whole church is to train us to become more Christ-like. It's to train us to learn how to serve and to love and to, to get along with people that we wouldn't usually serve with. That is the whole message. Ephesians 4 verse 14 in the New King James Version reads, He's warning them not to be tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plottings. We live in a day and age where there is cunning craftiness of humanity and deceitful plottings um, against those with faith, against those with morals, against those who are striving to live the commandments of God. It's so difficult to love those who persecute you and to do good to those who despitefully use you, but we're told to pray for them, and then our hearts will soften. We're told to come unto Christ and to ask that we can hold true while having charity. It's very difficult, but this, I believe, is a verse that refers to our day and age as much as it did to Paul's time's The last half of chapter 4, as well as all the way through the first half of chapter 5, give instructions on how to live in Christ's life. And we've got at least 10 verses with attributes to become like disciples. And the whole thing is leaving behind selfishness and becoming selfless. And I mentioned before, there's all these imperative verbs, that thou shalt kind of verbs. That's imperative, tense. Chapter 4, verse 22 reads, Put off your old self, corrupted by the deceitful desire. And then in 24 in the NIV, put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness. You know, like a butterfly, let's leave our old self behind and allow the Spirit to bless us and soar and become all that God created us to become. Skipping down quite a ways to Ephesians 4 verse 30 in the BSB, we have a very important warning. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. In whom you were sealed for redemption. We can grieve the Spirit by sins of omission and sins of commission. You know, sometimes we do it by the things we listen to and watch and do and say. Sometimes we do it when our hearts are set too much on the things of this world, according to section 121. Sometimes we offend the Spirit by not following it, by not taking that leap of faith and. Following every prompting we receive, or following the guidance that others have given us through blessings, our patriarchal blessings, our general conferences. We can offend the Spirit in many ways, and He's begging them live by the Spirit. It is such a powerful gift if you use it. Otherwise, you're just letting in a very expensive instrument sit in your garage and never touching it. Allow that Spirit to work with you, and you will be able to move spiritually and grow in ways that you haven't before. In chapter five, He's still on this long list of things to do and don't. I want to read from verse six in this CSB translation. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments. I chose this one because I just feel so many people are being led astray with empty arguments. One of the reasons why I started Book of Mormon Central, which is now Scripture Central, is so that we would have a safe place to go to to get answers. Our archive is fabulous. It's the largest archive and repository of accurate scholarship that we have in the church. When you have questions, don't allow some shallow-minded anti to pull you down. Look for deeper answers. When I did my whole series of hard questions in church history, I have handouts, and we have not only those in the archives, but a hundred times more information. My other colleagues here have also done a fabulous job on these things, and I hope you can use our resources to find them. Continuing on in chapter 5, verse 8, it reads in the New American Standard Bible You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Now, remember, you're a child when it says children. It's not necessarily, he's talking about your age here. He's talking about the fact that children are covered by the atonement, and a child is meek and humble. Not necessarily in our world, but in that world where they used a lot of physical punishment, you believe that children were humble. We go back to the gifts of the Spirit in chapter 5, verse 9. We had talked about these last week in Galatians chapter 5, and here we are in Ephesians 5. And he says, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. You know, he doesn't go into all the details that we had in Galatians. He uses different words, but it's still the same message that if you're feeling the Spirit, you're going to feel goodness and truth. Ephesians 5 18 now turns to things not to do. He says in the NIV, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart for the Lord always giving thanks to God, the Father, for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, in the ancient world, wine was used as a purifier of the water. Now, if you were wealthy, You didn't have to dilute it so many times. But the average home in Palestine would dilute their water with one part wine, 10 parts water. But on important days like Passover, you would only have three parts water to one part wine. And according to some scholars, they think a strong drink was two parts water, one part wine. So this just helps put that in context But I think there's something powerful about this message of singing and praising the Lord and adding music into our life, good, wholesome, uplifting music. The Spirit often works better in music than it does even in the spoken word. As a musician myself, I am so grateful for the gift of music and the gift of the Spirit working through music. In chapter 5, verse 21, we now begin this advice on families, and it's called a household conduct. We find four of these in the epistles in the New Testament. Ephesus, 1 Peter, Colossians, and Titus all talk about them. But this is a really long one, and some of them are a little bit tricky. So in Ephesus 5, verses 21 to 33, he gives instructions on Christian marriage. And he says in verse 22, "'Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as unto the Lord.'" I want to remind you that this word submit from the Greek is used many, many times in the New Testament, 38 times. Paul uses it 28 times in the corpus that's under his name. And remember that it has two meanings. Initially, it meant to arrange in a military fashion under the command of a leader. But over time, this Greek word added on different meanings. I appreciate Jack Welch and John Hall's translation in the charting of the New Testament The wife will stand behind her husband in all things when the husband stands behind Christ. And only the wife knows that. She has to have the spirit of revelation to know when they're going to cooperate. But outside of the military setting, this word in Greek developed a non-military definition. And I'd like to read that to you. A voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. Now, I've mentioned this so far in all of the epistles, and I hope we continue to get it into our head, that any time you read the word submit, put in place, voluntarily agreeing to carry on a burden, to help. However, I'm interested to learn that in this verse, chapter 5, verse 22, the best Greek texts do not even have that verb here. It reads, wives, to your own husbands, as to the Lord, which adds a whole other idea to what it means. Verse 23 continues with this advice to the spouses. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. As we talked about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the word head, kafal, means the source or the origin. Adam was the source of Eve Christ was the source of Adam and God the Father was the source of Christ. You know, so he has this, this, we're going back to the Garden of Eden is what we're talking about here. We're going back to the creation. But Paul is not using the word archon, which is chief or ruler. This is not what he's trying to say. He continues on in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. He gives advice to the wives He gives more advice to the husbands. If the wives are upset because he starts with them, just read verse 25 first, and then you won't be too upset, I hope. 25 also uses this word agape. Do you remember when we talked about the different ways of expressing love in Greek? They have four or five different words to mean love. And whenever Christ refers to love, all times except for once, he uses agape. Agape. And that is what Paul is using here. The husband is to have agape. He is to have Christ-like love. He is to love as he loves, as Christ loves. That is how a husband should love his wife. And then Christ has pure love, agape, for the church. This was completely new doctrine in this community. Not just in this community, in the whole Roman Empire. Um, You know, marriages were arranged very young. Most marriages were arranged before 12 and a half. And in fact, I want to read from one good scholar. This requirement was a new, radical idea that Christian husbands were also to love and submit to their wives rather than control them. As I mentioned, I think Christ was not only a defender of women and marriage and family life, but he was a defender of mutuality. He didn't want one above the other. The only thing we are to submit to is Christ, and then we work together and cooperate to build his kingdom. Continuing on in verse 31 of chapter 5, I'll read from the NIV. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Paul is always very candid and open about the importance of intimacy in marriage, and we see it here in Ephesians as well. Verse 33 reads in the BSB, Each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband, Again, Paul goes back to the law of Moses and not to the higher law that Christ taught at the Last Supper. President Russell M. Nelson wrote on Husbands and Wives that their stewardships are equally sacred and important. Do not involve any false ideas about domination or subordination. And earlier than that, the past Boyd K. Packer wrote, "...in the church there is a distinct line of authority, but in the home it is a partnership." with husband and wife equally yoked together, sharing in decisions, always working together. Another conference report, in marriage, there is not a president or a vice president. The couple works together and they are on equal footing. And that's Elder L. Tom Perry. I could have kept going and going and going. Almost every conference, there is something on this subject. Ephesians chapter six now turns to instructions for children and parents in the first four verses. Verse 1 reads, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And I always had my children memorize this as their first verse of scripture. Usually by age two, they all had this verse down. You don't have to follow them unless they're following our Savior. You can still cooperate, but you do not follow unless they're following God. Continuing on with advice for parents, in chapter 6, verse 4, it reads, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Much to my surprise, Paul next turns, or the author of the letter next turns, to talk about advice for servants and slaves and masters. Remember, every household had many. And I just want to go back to remind you, we talked about this in the past, that Christ did not get rid of servitude. And as we talked about in the Gospels many, many times, he says, I came to serve. You know, he takes on the role of a slave when he washes the feet at the Last Supper. He is turning the social hierarchy on its head. He did not come to be served. He came to teach masters how to serve. That is how we become unified, is we are serving one another. We are all there to build the kingdom of God on equal footing. And so, as we move forward, he says in chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, Slaves, you must obey your earthly masters, show them great respect, and be as loyal to them as you are to Christ try to please them at all times. And not just when you think they're watching, you are slaves of Christ. Now that's the CEV translation. Remember, slave and servant is the same word. So if slave offends you, just take it out. Remember, slaves are released in the Roman empire by age 30 in some provinces and 35 in others. And Jewish male slaves only served for seven years. Females could serve for life if they were to raise children up to their masters. But the whole idea is foreign to us. Think of an indentured servant or something, but I like it in relationship to our God. We are to serve him every morning on our knees. What can I do for you today? I'm here to serve you. And then throughout the day, what else can I do? Send me more promptings. I will follow. What else can I do? We are to wait on the Lord. i also love verse 7 and 8 in chapter 6. With good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall be received of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. So he's saying, if you're a servant or you're a master, if you're doing good and serving those around you and being kind and gentle, you're obeying God. So it doesn't matter if your job is sweeping the floor or if your job is directing the company. I want you to be a servant of Christ and I want you to be kind and gentle and long suffering and patience and full of love. Verse 9 continues on in the MIV. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. He's constantly warning them. Just because you're the one paying the bills right now, you're the one supplying the bed and board, you have no right to not treat them with respect and kindness. He then has 10 verses, Ephesians chapter 6, 10 to 20, and putting on the whole armor of God. Now, every town and village had Roman soldiers. We all know what a police car looks like. We know what a policeman usually dresses in. And that is why he uses this analogy. But I love the way he ties it to Christ because we are too in a battle against the adversary. He says in verse 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness, And that's why we have to put on the armor of God. And he says in chapter six, verse 12, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day. You know, I feel like in our culture, we're so careful about buckling in our little kids in seat belts and having them in car seats until they're old enough to see out the window and then a booster seat. And we keep them buckled in securely. And when they're on their bikes, we tell them to wear helmets. We are more worried about their physical safety than we are their spiritual safety. I feel like the armor of God is all about spiritual safety. He's asking us to put these things on. In verse 15 and 16, he says that your feet should be shod with the preparation of the gospel and the shield of faith. Don't you love that image? It says to quench the fiery darts of the wicked if we have faith, if we look through the lens of trusting God. All of these things, though, are defensive warfare the shield, the shoes, the buckler, the helmet, the only offensive warfare is the sword. And in verse 17, we're told that the sword is the spirit, which is the word of God. That's in the BSB translation. If the sword is offensive, that means our scriptures are what we use to attack the devil. And our scriptures are what we use to attack the adversary of any sort. I am so grateful for the scriptures and I hope that you can learn them so well that they too can be at your fingertips. Remember, Christ denounced the devil during the temptations by quoting scripture and the apostles have done it throughout the rest of the New Testament over and over again. And we can do the same thing. If we know our scriptures, we cannot be deceived. And if we know the spirit, we can use it to follow the promptings to know when to bless and when to defend the Lord. Chapter six, verse 17 also says, take the helmet of salvation. Now, remember, a wound to the head could kill someone, and they used to just have a leather cap. But the Romans and the Greeks began using different kinds of metal, and it became very important. In fact, this helmet was either a bronze or iron. In some cases, it was even gold. Nothing short of an axe or a hammer could pierce that heavy helmet. And then Paul gives his personal greetings. Chapter six verses 21 to 24, peace be to the brothers and sisters and love your faith. Of course, that's the NIV because it includes the sisters, but that's the whole message. And there's no specific greetings to anyone. He does say though in verse 20 in the NIV, I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And so Paul concludes another letter or Paul had someone else write it, but we have another book of scripture that is filled with wonderful counsel. I believe that these scriptures are as applicable to our day and age as they were in Paul's days, but I am even more grateful to have a living prophet, and I believe that his messages are as important, if not more so, than our canonized scripture. I believe that all of them, though, are to lead us to Jesus Christ as we prepare for his second coming. May we all put on the armor of God, I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.